Hello and welcome to the Blitz Business Development Show. My name is Mayo Best and I'm a business consultant and coach as well as the founder of the Blitz Business Development Academy. This is a show that provides guidance, resources, and access to best practices to help you advertise, manage, and build geometric profits. From freelancers and home-based business owners to startups and storefronts, you will learn how to start small as you think and grow big. Hey guys, want to learn how to increase your productivity by as much as 40%? Want to learn how to increase your motivation? Folks, you want to learn how to reduce the amount of money that's going to take you to be able to pay for things like insurance for your employees and so forth. Now, regardless of where you are in the spectrum of business, what we're going to be talking about today is going to be phenomenal. Why? Because not only is this going to be advantageous to your business, it's going to be also advantageous to your health. Guys, we have a packed show today, and we're going to get so much out of this if you listen till the end. Why? Because we have not a one, but multi-millionaire who's going to be on this show, showing us, telling us, teaching us how to take your businesses from the very beginning. And listening to him, you're going to learn, guys, what it took for him to go from product to actually distribution. Okay, so if you have a product-based business, you're going to definitely want to listen to this. If you've got back problems, guys, you're going to definitely want to listen to this. He goes extremely deep and just literally, guys, opens up to us and teaches us so much. So grab your gym bags and get ready so you can catch those gems in our next show. So I know it says desk size, but that'll all make sense a little bit later on. One more thing, guys, I just want you to know that all of the show notes as well as all of the gems that he's dropping is at the end of the show. So all you have to do is when you get to the end, hit pause on the video and you can take all those gems and put them in your bag. OK, so without further ado, guys, let me introduce you. Lewis Stack is a World Cup ski racer now turned CEO of his own multi-million dollar international company Fitter First. He has become an expert in balance and stability and makes some of the most sought after products in his industry. Lewis has worked with leading experts from around the world, ranging from pro-level skiers to program developers at NASA. He spent years helping to develop effective protocols to help folks in all stages of life to maximize their mobility in an effort to enjoy the highest quality of life they can. And it's not just his mission, it's his passion. All right, folks, and we are back now. I'm here with Mr. Lewis Stack. And I've been looking forward to doing this for quite some time, guys. Uh, Lewis is pretty phenomenal. I can't wait to get into his story and really talk about, you know, what he actually does. I can personally attest that what we're going to talk about today, I'm telling you guys now, we all as entrepreneurs need to be doing this. Okay. We need to be doing this because trust me, I have gained a lot of weight (laughs) during COVID. And it's not just the weight, it's just also just in terms of performance. So what we're going to be talking about with Lewis today, and as you saw, the the title of the show is about Deskercise, okay? Deskercise is what I'm calling it. He has a much better (laughs) title for it, (laughs) which is what you see in the background there, Active Office. But I call it Deskercise because I I know what this culture is like in terms of working at home. And trying to, you know, not even trying, but just getting so stuck in a rut to where all we do is work. 
Okay. <laughs> and I know what it's like, guys. You don't want to take the time and go to the gym. Who's got time for that? This is the solution to that. All right. But this gentleman is going to let us know exactly how all this stuff works. And we're going to go even deeper than that because he's not just great at what he does in terms of these solutions, but he's also got a pretty phenomenal business. So on so many different levels, guys, we can learn a lot from Lewis and we're going to try to pick apart his brain today. All right. So let's get ready to go deep. So as I say to you guys, get your pens, get your paper. All right. If you got to get the environment quiet, go ahead and get it because class is about to be in session. All right. So, Lewis, first, let's start with, sir, where are you originally from? Well, I'm from right here. <laughs> Calgary. <laughs> okay. And that's where I got my shoes, too. No, I'm from Calgary, Alberta. I was born and raised here, and it's where I'm sitting today in my office in uh, southeast Calgary. And I've been around the world. And I like where I'm from. I could have lived in you know, a lot of places, but Calgary's an awesome place. And you know, most of the time, Canada is a great country. We're 30 minutes from the Rocky Mountains. And that's mm. what makes Calgary so great. We're so close to the Rockies. Awesome. Awesome. And what was it like growing up in, in Canada or where you're from in Canada? Yeah. You know, it's a lot like being from Denver in the sense that you have the mountains right there where you're on the prairies with the mountains beside us and you know, I grew up in a, a large family with seven kids raised by my mother, mm-hmm. and I, I was the youngest, and uh, it worked really good because there's all these hand-me-downs. I always had lots of hand-me-downs <laughs> until, until I was 13 years old. I had jobs as well, but at 13, the problem was I grew like a weed, and no one else in my family was over six feet, and I grew to 6'4", and I had size 14 wow. feet. So none of, the cl- <laughs> none of the clothes fit anymore. So if I wanted to have to close, I'd have to take my paper money and go buy ones that actually fit me. Yeah, right. because I had the the rainstorm pants, and I was wearing the Birkenstocks that were too small, and you had long <laughs> hair, and it was a typical '70s you know hippie kid. Uh, but it was kind of weird when the clothes didn't fit anymore. So right, that's right. the problem when you get too big, and I was too big. <laughs> you were too big. That's funny. So yeah. So at what point in your upbringing? Because you know, looking at your business and looking, yeah. I, I see a lot of ingenuity. I see a lot of innovation. Um, and do some of the conversations that we've also had. Right. Was there something in your upbringing, though, that contributed to that? I'm just curious. Very, very much so. My two oldest brothers um, were very mechanical. Mm. My oldest brother finished a high school in automotives back in 1969. You could finish. He was born in 51, and I was born in 59. So okay. there was five boys in, in nine years, and... You know, in those years growing up, we had Austin Healy's and MG's and Bug Eye Midgets and MGTD's and, you know, a few muscle cars. But by the time I was 18, I had owned 18 cars and motorcycles that I bought and sold. Worked in a gas station and, uh, yeah, I'd owned 18 vehicles. (laughs) But more than that, my 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 older brothers and the neighbors down the street, the Dixons, they had Shelby's and Cobras, and I mean, they. We had more cars in that street. Measure Smiths, like just a crazy number of cars. So, huh. everyone was working on cars all the time. So, huh. like it was insane how many things they worked on. So I learned to help them, and I learned about building stuff. And when we started the company, the first thing I did is I called my. I borrowed three thousand dollars from my mother because I had this idea that mm-hmm. helped me with my rehab. And um, I phoned my brother who was living out in Vernon, BC, and by mm-hmm. Silver Star Ski Area. And he brought his tools into Calgary and in the muddy backyard of my rental house. 
we started working on this design that I had sort of in a serendipity moment after thinking about it for a year and a half, it came together for me. And, and I could visualize how I could build this thing with people I knew and things I had access to. Mm. And I got, he, he had to come in and we had to figure it out together. But without him, it wouldn't have happened. Like I didn't have that skill set, but right. I was really, really good at helping him. Right, right, right. And huh. together, we, you know, we each brought skill sets to the table, and that's how we got started. And he worked with us for 15 years. Okay. It's funny. I'm glad I asked you this question because, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but now it makes sense. Now, looking at your story, but I don't want to give up some stuff for the audience. I'll let them make the connection with me. So, okay. So, um, my next question to you is, now, you ended up, becoming pretty good at skiing what i like to know is at what point in your upbringing did you start skiing was that something that you did as a child or did you do that when you got older yeah i started super young uh my parents the one thing they decided they i guess they skied a little bit when they're in the late 40s because i have pictures of my mom and dad climbing up a hill in, in the city at a, a park not far from our, our house now and they would ski down and climb back up again and some of their friends were on toboggans this would have been in 1948 49 right after the war okay. and you know they all were drinking beer after in the old pickup truck and i remember my grandparents house had a bunch of old-fashioned skis in the garage but i mm-hmm. my parents would take us all the kids up to mount norquay it's a smaller mountain right by banff alberta you know a very mm-hmm. famous location Um, and all the older kids were allowed to ski and my sister and myself and my brother, the little ones weren't, you know, they put us in daycare and I hated that. So when I finally was allowed, the older ones were allowed to ski and I said, I'm skiing and I'll never forget the first time I got on that pommel lift, my little brown suit and, you know, I fell down and they said, let go, let go, let go. And I just refused and not a chance. I'm dragging (laughs) up to the top, you know, and I dragged up to the top and I learned to ski down, but I loved skiing and I would. I uh, take a bus up. I joined every club I could join. And, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters didn't keep skiing, but there's a ski bus that left right from near a, a mall by our house um, with Norm, Norm Russell. And you could go, kids could go on this bus. He'd take us all up skiing. And I was on that bus every weekend, you know, with made new friends there. It was just my favorite thing to do as a kid that grew up too close to the tracks you know, walking there and catching that ski bus and going away for the day was freedom to me. And I loved it. So mm. I've done that my whole life. I've always skied. Mm. Okay. So now at some point you actually became a professional skier, correct? Well, now, yes, and I did an amateur skier and at the world cup level. So, you know, there is a difference, uh, you know, between a professional skier, which gets paid uh, in the old days anyways, and an amateur skier, which is skiing for a national team in what's called the fifth circuit, you know, the international federation okay. of skiing. Uh, now there is money to be made as an amateur athlete in the Olympic level or the world cup. But in those days, if you got paid any money, you were then a professional skier and you couldn't compete in the Olympics or on a national team. That was just how it used to be. Yes. I was a high level, a high level skier, uh, and made the Canadian national speed skiing team, which was a kind of a, a little sideline team. There's Alpine and downhill and Solomon and GS. And then we are kind of the bad boys off on the side that was not getting any main field funding. And we still had world cup races and fist races and some downhill racers would come to them, mm-hmm. you know, but we were the, the weird guys out in the side, but it was really fun. Mm-hmm. We got up to 125 miles an hour. That was really fun. Wait, what? On skis? <laughs> yeah. 
God. <laughs> that you know, it's funny. I only have one ski story. <laughs> <laughs> My one ski story is started out with me thinking it really being stupid. Um, all I know is <laughs> we went someplace and I, I was probably uh, early 20s or so, wherever we went. I can't even remember where. We're. I think it was in Pennsylvania somewhere. I went with a buddy. And all I remember what it was that it was called the Diamond. Okay. And I went down the Diamond. Well, let me correct myself. I fell down the Diamond. Down the Diamond. Right. Um, I think after that... <laughs> I remember trying to get back up the diamond and this was probably my last ex ski experience. Now I was just actually glad that I didn't break anything because one thing that I, I, I understood really fast when you see the skiers and when you're watching TV, of course, and they they're falling down the mountain and you, they look like they're falling uncontrollably. In your mind, when you're watching this, you're thinking, you're thinking to yourself, hey, why don't they just stop themselves? Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah. know any better. Yeah, well, I learned firsthand why they don't just stop themselves. It's because you can't. <laughs> you literally... Yeah, and yeah. yeah go ahead. <laughs> well, on TV, it never looks steep. And right. It does look steep. But what I'm right. saying, it's a lot <laughs> steeper than it looks. You're absolutely yeah. right. So that experience was kind of like my first and last experience skiing. So I can't imagine 120 miles an hour on skis because I barely made it down 5 to 10 miles an hour before I fell. So, you know what? My hat off to you and everybody else that's able to do that well. Well, any kind of skiing fast is challenging. I just wanted to point out you said something that it's worth it's a segue here. I did mm. race luge before that because when I had my foot operations at 23, mm. I was unable to wear ski boots for a long time. So they opened the luge track in Calgary okay. before the 88 Olympics and they needed athletes. So I also raced luge for five years. And much like speed skiing, once you're in that track, mm. um, you, you don't stop. Like if you fall off, you're pretty much going to end up at the bottom. Mm. And likewise, in, in things like speed skiing, where you're going straight down a mile long mountain that's mm. very steep. You know, if you stop, the issue is don't hit anything. If you don't hit anything, <laughs> you're fine, right? Right. It, it's like par parachuting. If you get in trouble, as long as you don't hit anything parachuting and you get your parachute open, you'll be fine. But right. if you hit something, it's not good. I would show you this. We have copied the um, green. Oh, maybe I have my fingers over it. No, there it is. How do you do this? I'm not very good at this. The green, blue, and black. <laughs> Got you. Right there. Okay, I see it. The Ready diamond. Go. So, at, yeah, you, lucky you didn't fall down the double black diamond run. Oh my god! <laughs> you wanted to be crazy. You wanted to be on the green run or blue I, at the most, and you went down the. the <laughs> so I surely we, should have we, been on the green. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we I would have had a second ski experience had I gone yeah. to the green, but I completely destroyed my skiing future by going down the diamond. Trust me, that was it for me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know we we've taken that exact concept and applied it to all the different products we manufacture for ah, the same reason, really. You know? <clears throat> because you have World Cup athletes that want extremely challenging products that would hurt a lot of people that are of a lower level, and then you get people coming out of uh, injuries from car accidents, or they've mm -hmm. had a stroke, or a walker, or something's happened, injury, illness, or accident, mm -hmm. and they need low-level products to help them 
come back again that's you know, awesome. to rebuild their okay. confidence so we, we've always made things that go from very low to very high and one of the crazy things we discovered is that when you are working at a desk almost everybody needs a very low level product to work with if you mm. get too high it's disrupting to your brain you know it disrupts mm. your, your process of thinking right and so then you're not as productive so we didn't know this like that's something we learned and, and you don't learn these things because you're smart you learn them through trial and error and right. 36 years of playing this game just like skiing right you don't go down the black runs at the beginning you do that at the end <laughs> right once you've gone down the green and once you've gone down the blue <laughs> right don't do what mayo did <laughs> <laughs> don't do what mayo did that's don't right. do what mayo did <laughs> okay so that brings me to this question so at what point did you actually create fitter first well, the company was formed in, uh, formally formed in August of 1985. Uh, it was formed in Alberta as an Alberta corporation under a different name in April of 85. Okay. And, and, and was it something that that was related to skiing that led you to creating Fitter First or how yeah. did, it, what was the impetus it, for that? So we had made two products, a red one and a blue one of this ski machine we called then the Ski Fitter. Okay. I've got the, the blue one on display up in our showroom here. Mm-hmm. And uh, then what happened is I volunteered to drive a van to pick up athletes for a uh, fundraiser for, um, I'll tell you in a second, it was Ken Reed Invitational. And it was a, Ken Reed was a, fa- a famous skier from Canada called a Crazy Canuck. And they had won the Honkong, the toughest race in the world, four years in a row. And that never happened for any team in the world. And the Crazy Canucks did it with Podborski, Reed, and uh, hmm. Todd Brooker, who's a friend of mine. And anyways, I knew Todd from my knee surgery, and he was in that race in, in Lake Louise as fundraiser. And when I saw him, I asked him if he'd like to try the machine. And he said, yes, he would. And I said, well, bring it up to your room. He said, no, meet me in the lobby at the Chateau Lake Louise which is a beautiful castle on Lake Louise with the giant glacier above it. It's, it's one of the most you know, photographed, uh, beautiful hotels in the world, mm-hmm. in the Rocky Mountains. So anyways, I go there, and that's where my parents worked and got, met each other and got married. And uh, we went there on our honeymoon as well. So it's just this beautiful place. And I take it out in the lobby there, and all these skiers start playing on it, and they love it. And I walk away with three orders from people. And I drove home that night after I finished you know, driving people around and doing anything. And I had a very lousy job, but I quit it as I'm going for it. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just you know, got three of the best skiers in Canada that ordered, well, two of them, and Walter Wolf's uh, pilot. He's wow. a, a, a millionaire who had an F1 team at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and the pilot bought one of his Learjet. And so I had you know, traded one for a downhill suit from Todd Brooker, which is what ultimately got me into speed skiing after I did luge. Okay. And Nancy Green, a famous, famous Canadian who won gold medals in uh, in 1964 she bought one for her kid who's racing and then Todd mm-hmm. Brooker gave me or bought one and Walter Wolf bought one his pilot so man I was stoked I was so excited yeah. that I went home and just uh, this thing's going to take off and uh, the rest is sweat equity <laughs> yeah. sweat equity not history but sweat equity right yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of dri- yeah a lot of a lot of driving in vans full uh-huh. of pro fitters because uh-huh. my bicycle shoved down the side and a back a place to sleep at night when I locked my bike to the back fender and I did road trips northeast south and west from Calgary and sold them to physical therapy clinics out of my van I love it and, that and I sold lots muscle. of them yeah okay yeah. so let me, so wait a minute that makes me want to ask another question though so then the the machine itself your first original machine the, the, did you build that for yourself or what was the 
the, pr- yeah. the purpose why as to why you built it well it was i had you know this double foot operation and my knee was operated on you know to uh in 79 i never fully recovered oh. and you know the alberta was in a terrible state thanks to the father of our current leader um trudeau and they had shut the oil industry down so there was just my only skill set was a waiter and i was on crutches mm-hmm. and you know my feet had been destroyed by the surgeon because i had really bad spurs like i mean brutal spurs on my heels and my toes mm-hmm. uh and shoes were pretty much out of the option for me i had to wear sandals and my feet were size 14 anyway so mm-hmm. you know ski boots were not an option anymore no one made boots like that right so you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what I could do. So I had the operation on my feet, and that worked, but it was very messy, and the recovery was very slow. And I had to find some way to kind of get my health back. And I saw this idea for a ski machine, and so well, like, why not? Like, what else am I going to do? So I decided to try to build it. And then I had to figure out if I could build it, then I had to figure out if I could sell it. And I'm pretty good at sales, and I thought, well, what else am I going to do? Who else am I going to work for? I watched two other companies go bankrupt. I, I thought they were both not driving the companies very well. I said, look, if those guys can try to drive a company and go off the road, right. I, I, can, I can do a lot better job than they did. And I, so they taught me what not to do, at least a little bit. And then Brian Tracy became my mentor of life. And I followed Brian Tracy, mm-hmm. the, the um, philosophy of achievement. I listened to that set of tapes probably a thousand times. And, you know, I'll tell you, he, Brian Tracy's tapes guided me, and that's how I made my way through. I okay. didn't have any parent guidance, that's for sure. So right. I had no mentors in my life. Right, right, right. It's interesting. You know, I, I oftentimes um, think a lot myself about how do you end up where you are sometimes. And you, when you, and then Steve Jobs used to say you can only connect the dots looking backwards and kind of see. Yeah. And there's the reason why I like to ask some of the questions that I ask, cause I like to, I like to figure out how entrepreneurs became as skilled or successful at what they do. What was it that they did when they were younger and how do those dots connect? So I'm listening to you and it's like, yep, makes sense. Now everything that you did as a mechanic, the ingenuity and, you know, even just the work ethic, cause it takes a lot of work to, to work on cars and stuff like that. And it, and a lot of times people don't really realize that a lot of, I think what separates you from your success in business. It's not your acumen. It's not really your skill. A lot of it has to do with your character. A lot of yeah. it has to do with you. And and these are the things that sometimes I think today we're kind of losing in this microwave society to where we get access to information so fast. We get information and access to it quickly, but we get it at the expense of nuance, which is experience. And the challenge with experience, it is counterintuitive to microwave you know, mindsets because it takes time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can't experience as much as fast as people get thrown at them nowadays. It just it comes in so fast, it goes out so fast that they can't digest the, the full, as you said, the nuances. And then you take someone like yourself or myself, and I, you had said something there that reminded me. Um, I always worked, like I always had jobs, mm-hmm. right from my paper route that I gave up before I was old enough to have it. My two brothers had it before me and my other two brothers had it after them and then I took them. And the funniest thing was I couldn't let the two paper routes go away. Mm-hmm. So I took them I took them both. I had 104 papers I did every day. Mm. And on Saturdays I carried four paper bags. Like I was a big guy though. 
Mm-hmm. Even as a little kid, I carried so many papers. It was ridiculous. And, you know, I do it for two hours every day and I had a work ethic, you know, then I'd help in the skating rink. I just learned how to work. And sadly, I watched as a very young kid, I watched my dad destroy his life. And I said, eh, that looks like a bad idea. You know, mm-hmm. so I, that taught me, but I always worked and I, I worked with my brothers on the cars all the time after I got home. And, you know, I just learned how to work. And uh, the, the other funny thing I really learned is I would go to Cash Corner downtown and there'd be a lot of you know bums and guys that weren't very good workers there or, or mm. guys that drank too much mm. and i'd stand there in catch corner you know at 14 years old as my you know as six four you know, lanky but still smart enough to be useful and strong enough to be good and i could reach things and the guys would come pick me up right away and i installed billboards up on ladders that i could have died on and i did you know <laughs> meat packing plants and it was in freezers i was in grain elevators i mean the jobs i did i did so many jobs and i sure found out a lot of jobs i didn't like <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah i i, I my, me too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no but you know it's awesome in a way because like i said you know like just listening to you and you, you just gave me even more information that helps for folks to understand and, and that the reason why i think this is important um and what, what i try to do in this show especially for entrepreneurs that are listening. You know, I, I want people to stop just looking and listening to like your, you know, like the late Steve Jobs or to listen to Bezos or to Elon. Don't just look at what they do. Study what they've done. Yes. We, yeah. we don't, you know, it's easy to get back and get enamored by other people's X factor and the things that, that makes them look awesome. But with a real education, what's useful for us is to know what you actually went through and what it took for you to get where you actually are. That, to me, is more important, honestly, than hearing what you've accomplished, because, you know, the arriving at the journey, it's only it only lasts for so long once you hit the quote unquote success. You're right back starting all over again on another part of the length of the journey. So that's why I think that, you know, it's important for us to, and sometimes just share with each other, you know, not just the successes, but the failures, you know, and the fact that you're still here. And I'm quite sure like you, like in your business, as it is with most people that are successful, it's not all high. It's going to be some lows, (laughs) you know, and listen to you from the paper grind. To, and it's funny because what you did as the paper grind is exactly what you ended up having to do to sell your products later. You still had to go basically almost door to door. You still had to have the same hustle, but it's got to start someplace. And in your case, it started when you were young. And hopefully that's how it's starting with most folks. So note to the audience here for those that this applies to. If you're not at this level, that's fine. But the notes here, guys, is to just remember that. These are the types of things it's going to take. It's what you do in the dark that you'll be rewarded for in the in in the light. You know, it's what people don't see. Yeah, behind the scenes. That's right, and that's the stuff <laughs> that's going to make you really, you know, successful later. And you're not going to get credit for it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to come pat you on the back and say good job sometimes. So you I, just made you just made me think of something that's very very funny. I've never thought of before in my life. Mm-hmm. That where I had my paper route and also where I bought my first house ever, mm-hmm. to, and I, I sold it to get an investor out of my company, which was a real shame. Mm-hmm. But 
It, it was duplexes, and they were the worst thing about my whole paper route ever was we had to go collecting every month and collect from the houses to get our money, and mm. that's how it worked. You know, so you deliver the paper right. thirty days, and then you'd have to go. And on that street, the guys <laughs> would never pay their bill. They'd always say, "Hey, man, I have no money. Come back." You know, and it's like owning a company. If you don't get your receivables under control and the people that pay you late all the time, you don't make them prepay. We have this happening today. 30-year-old customer once again said, oh, the check came back. We'll send a check in two weeks. We're going, no, 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 no. We're not your bank. Stop doing this. You're going to be on prepay for three more invoices now, right? They've been doing this for 30 years to us. And same with those houses that used to always make me come back, right? For my dollar twenty-five after <laughs> right. delivering this paper 30 days in a row. And and the hardest one of the hardest things about business you got to get your control of is your receivables. Mm. And in my paper route, it was brutal. And mm. even today, we have hardly no receivables problems, but we still got those one or two accounts. Right. You know, twenty or thirty years later, are still a pain in the butt on mm. receivables. And yeah, you know, we have no problem with them anymore other than those two accounts. So my paper route was the same way. Right. The right. problems never go away. <laughs> right. Right. They, as my friend says, they just get more manageable. You just learn yeah, or the, or, how to deal with the problems, yeah. And the decimal points move. Now, yeah, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing it right, yeah, the decimal yeah. points move. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that, I'm going to use that to transition. That's a little bit different area of question here. But before I leave this area, I want to ask you this one last question about the products because I'm, I'm just curious. Um, because you have the type of business to where, you know, innovation and and things like that is actually really a, an active ingredient in your business. You actually are creating your products. You're not just doing like e-commerce, like a lot of folks where drop shipping and stuff like that. of yeah, yeah. products. You actually are actually in, in inventing things. So I'm just curious in terms of your approach to developing the products for your, for your customers or for your market, I would say how, how does the, the fact that let's say, because it sounds like you do a lot of things and have like skiers and so forth in mind. How does you being a skier um, and operating and functioning on that level contribute to your product design How and your approach, your methodology for that? Um, <clears throat> that's a very interesting question. Uh, it, it's It's got a lot to do with where I started. You know, where I began was in the ski and ski racing industry because there's a lot of ski racers that got hurt. And I had a strong interest in the lateral aspect of tennis, mm-hmm. skiing, court sports like squash and, and uh, other sports and courts, of course, racquetball. Uh, then volleyball and other court sports became followed in quite closely. So sports was where we saw high-level athletes. Uh-huh with high risk of injury and the best way to control the injury was to improve the performance of the joints and the awareness of the body. And that was the same thing they do to help them get over an injury if they had one. So the, the variable was simply the injury. The tools of use were the same, you know, whether it was before the injury or the after. So obviously it became very prudent to educate athletes as quickly as possible to prevent the injury. Right. It right. just it just became obvious. Like it's right. I, I kind of always said if I could just have a room full of people that went through the windshield of a car <laughs> in nineteen sixty five and my name was Ralph Nader, it'd be the easiest sell in the world. You know? <laughs> They'd be going, Well, why didn't you show me that before? That would have been so much better. You know? 
<laughs> right. But, you know, so in, you know, injured people are easy to sell and to educate. So it's not sell. It's to educate on the concept. Mm. And they would have said, oh, my God, why didn't you talk to me before this happened? But right. th- those that haven't gone through it are not that easy. But athletes are because they've seen their peers get hurt mm-hmm. and they, they want to perform at their peak and they don't want to get injured. Right. So they were easy adapters. And, you know, because I was a skier, I knew a lot of skiers and I knew a lot of racers that got hurt and they got exposed to more racers. And we had the Olympic facilities just out here in Calgary for the 88 Olympics. And one of the things I did in the 88 Olympics was very entrepreneurial. I, without any permission at all, went around to all the venues. I was a volunteer, of course, so I had um, passes as well to get into most venues. Mm -hmm. But I also went to every venue I knew of and put a product down on the floor and left it there. Huh. And so all the athletes come in and they look around, and go, oh, what's this? And they started playing on it. And of course, the Canadian athletes knew what it was. And I got huge exposure on television by all sorts of athletes and uh, nice. sorry, athletes would use it. And like the Danish team loved it and they were being filmed on it by Danish TV. And the first international distributor I had going within two months after the Olympics, there's still a distributor today, wow. um, was NM- NMK out of Denmark. And they not only became a distributor, but they became very close friends to the degree that they let the entire speed skiing team stay at their house on many occasions as we flew through Copenhagen to go up to Scandinavia. And so it was hilarious because they'd let like 12 of us stay there on on numerous occasions going to and from World Cup races. So it's like they were our sponsor. Right, right. (laughs) They're still friends today, you know, and they just simply saw it on TV. That's awesome. The 88 Olympics. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying, because it it sounds like what you're saying is that your approach in making your products is essentially as customer centric from the respect that you're looking at. How can I prevent through conditioning by, I guess, preconditioning, prevent the injury of the athlete? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. See, and again, there's something else to point out that I think is very important. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Jeff of Jeff Bezos and his approach business-wise. He's very customer-centric. He's yeah. looking always at what the outcome is going to be for the customer and how can I better, you know, their lives in any shape or form. And that's what this sounds like, too. And I think this is a very important um, a, a metric, or I would say um, element for anybody to incorporate into their businesses is value you know the money will come guys all that stuff will come later but the value and you're right i could totally get that like <laughs> like you said if you could only get with folks that already gone from the windshield yeah that makes so much sense okay cool so what i want to know now is for you to for you to create the machine that you created initially that helps the the skier with with the balance and helps them with stability how did you take and transfer what you know kinesthetically about that how did you figure out how to put that into a machine to do what it does okay yeah i can answer it was mostly trial and error okay but yeah i mean this wasn't the first kind of lateral machine ever i've got samples of three or four up here and i'll I've got a, a display area up and a window up above us here, and it has two, four, six machines. One was called a ski tone from the 60s, and it was on a, a non-rocking base with a black rubber band, and mm-hmm. that's what Skiers Edge based themselves off of. 
you know, uh, the founder of that company says he sketched it on a, a napkin one day. But, you know, really it's a, a iteration of a product that was made called the Ski Tone in the 60s. And then it developed up and then the skier's edge came from that fundamentally. It's, it is different, but it's where it came from. Okay. Ours came from a product design called the Ski, it is called the Ski Fitter, F-I-T-T-E-R in Austria. Okay. And I was, when I worked at Alpine Canada, one showed up through a gentleman in Edmonton at our office. It looks similar to the, our product, but when it came to North America, the guy that brought here called it the Ski Rocker. And there was no distribution plan of any kind. And, I, and he brought it to the Alpine office where we worked. And I, it was just off crutches and I started using it and I liked it, but it had dangerous aspects to it that were not suitable for rehab. And, and it right. was quite similar, but quite different. Let me just say it right. that way. I tried to talk to that company and they weren't talking to anybody that didn't want any distribution anywhere. Mm. So they weren't looking for customers, but the guy that showed up wanted to be a customer and that whole thing had no logical common business sense in any way shape or form so mm -hmm. i just you know, as a young kid i just you know this has this is going nowhere there's nothing here and so i walked away from it and hadn't even considered anything more but i'd used that machine enough to realize it really conceptually helped me and i talked to some physical therapists about it and they said you know that looks like it'd be a very good idea we're working with downhill racers that could use that Mm -hmm. So we sort of said, well, what was wrong with it? And the biggest thing was the foot pads were super unstable. And so we talked about how we could change that. And then also you couldn't change the tension on it effectively. So we, we looked at that and said, what, what would we do differently? And then we also said, what was right about it? You know, because it had some features that were very interesting. And we concluded that the rocking base was much better than the non-rocking base. And this is kind of me just looking and playing with the samples I'd managed to get a hold of, like the ski drive, the non-rocking one. Mm -hmm. And Skier's Edge wasn't even out yet. It didn't exist yet. So I spent about a year brainstorming and playing with this thing. And then I mentioned earlier in January of 1985, I had a serendipity moment. And I woke up on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden, just like, I literally, I got it. I realized I could do it with the limited funds I had. I could make a metal plate out of aluminum. We could make wooden sides and screw them on. And instead of the kind of wheels that I've seen on other machines, we could make like, like train wheels mm -hmm. and it could run on like a, a track, like the side of a counter. Like mm -hmm. I just visually saw how I, how I could physically put this thing together, like what the axes would look like and how the foot pads would sit on it. Like it, it visually came together for me. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And I phoned my brother and said, can you come to Calgary and bring your router? And he did. And that's when he made the sides and we cut a, about 10 different sizes that like we, we got a bunch of metal, rod and bent it with rods in the middle and tried a bunch of different shapes and we found the shape of wood that when you walked back and forth it felt right and then when i built a skate and put it on top mm -hmm. you know I, I found the feeling that i felt was the best feeling as a skier right. right and then when we played with the foot pads we had boards that looked like they had a million holes in them because we drilled things in so many places trying to figure <laughs> out what felt right right and, and we missed on the first 200 machines we didn't have it right like they weren't mm -hmm. We knew we had something wrong, but we couldn't figure out how to fix that. Wait, and 200 you said machines 200? Had, yeah. You said 200? You guys did 200 different? Uh, uh, no, no. I, we went into production, and, and I started selling them out of my van. And then after we made, maybe it was like 180 of them. Like we made 8, and then 20, and then 40, and then we made a couple batches of 40. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay. And, and they, they were really hard to make. They had way too many pieces, and then 
you know, after doing this in my basement, I finally said, man, this is, I was going deaf because it was really loud to make them on the way we're doing it. And uh-huh. we said, we got it. We can't do this. We got to do this different. This is stupid. And so we rethought it again and, you know, did the same thing once back, hammering and cutting and just saying, we've got to make this thing different. It's not that hard. And what we learned is very important. Take things away. Don't add things. Mm. So instead of putting a bracket in, we cut a hole and removed the bracket, let a hole do the same thing. Wow. You know, and we really learned to take pieces away, don't add pieces. Right. So achieve, you know, achieve your, turn it upside down, do something different. Like if you're stuck, put it on its side, turn mm. it upside down. Like just look at it from a different perspective. And mm. we solved a lot of problems that way. I like that. I've got, a number, I've got a number of patents that were made because we put something upside down or inside out. And that's really? where we, that's where yeah, that's where we found the solution. Interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Okay. Okay. So, because I was going to ask you about that too, I was curious. Do you guys still make the product in house, or do you have it yeah. manufactured? Okay. So you are making it in house. Wow. Yeah. So that brings me to this question because <laughs> I was really curious about this. Um, in your business, how did you scale? Uh, we self financed. And scaled um, through growth, and we just, um, you know, did a lot of. I've done eleven hundred shows around the world. Wow! And if we could just, you know, I, I worked hard to listen to my customer and find ways to grow. So I'm just doing a little sunshade here. Mister Sunshine's coming on me pretty, pretty no fierce problem. here. Thanks. No problem. You're good. Well, except for I couldn't see out my one eye. Oh, you couldn't see? Okay. <laughs> then that's not good. I saw I saw one Allison, one of our great team members here. She just put her sunglasses on at the same time. I looked over and said, yeah, I either need sunglasses or we've got to move the sunshade. <laughs> but I stole her sunshade, so she knows she has to wear sunglasses. Um, we scaled a couple times, and then we flattened out. And I never tried to scale like um, – some of our counterparts. I've, I've seen male more products come and go than you can ever dream of in the mm. fitness mm-hmm. and the physical therapy and the consumer industry. Mm. You know, we were first distributors ever for the. Yeah, I could. I worked with Dale Reck from Bosu Ball before he brought it to market. He approached me and asked if I'd be his distributor, and I went back and forth with him. And I just I wasn't ready to take that one on. And I never. You know, he became the the be- the most well known balanced product in the world, the mm. Bosu Ball. You know, surpassed us by a long shot and it's a nice product it's got lots of features uh, we have a much different philosophy but it's a good product and David done, done very well with this product mm-hmm. and same with the T- TRX Randy who started that as his first distributor ever and mm-hmm. when I saw his product at his first show you know I, I went and talked to him right away and brainstormed a little bit with him and th- those are two you know products became multi-million products sold in the world but I've also seen 30 other products that you've never seen in your life and they came and went, right? And often we're the first dealer, or I just looked and said, yeah, guys, I, I don't think I can even try to throw you bones. I don't think there's anything to throw you, in my opinion. Mm. And I've got a lot of products that we've carried that are still doing okay. You know, we call them right. the walking wounded. Right. Uh, and we have some walk, we have walking wounded products too. I think they should be winners, but, you know, they're not winning as well as I'd like them to, but I'm not giving up on them because I think I know they're awesome products. Right. Uh, but sometimes you're early to the market. And sometimes the market doesn't understand certain things. Right. And then all of a sudden it becomes a windfall. And often it's not by my doing. Often it's someone else who's seen it and does a better job than I did on where they ran our coattails and they surpass us. So this right. is, you know how business works. Right, right, right. You know, and this is something too, you know, to, to, to discuss with the audience members in 
and this is where nuance comes into play <laughs> because it's funny how you can have a phenomenal idea but at the wrong time timing mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not something you can really control it's something that you have to learn how to be sensitive to and know when timing is talking to you and whispering and letting you know that it is not it's time yet or it is time and the only way to find out that it is time is don't necessarily it doesn't whisper that it is you have to put it out there and see but it'll yeah. definitely you'll definitely find out in your results you can kind of read the tea leaves so to speak um when it's just simply not working um and for those out there that's got great ideas listen what I've learned about this from my perspective, Lewis, is that sometimes you have a phenomenal idea mm -hmm. and it may not be its time, but don't throw it away. You just put it on the shelf. And then you it's funny how it works because it'll be 10 years later. You may have forgotten about the idea, but you always keep it because when it's time comes, oh man, it's a completely different story and it's there. So, guys, it's not wasted just because it's a good idea at the wrong time. Just so that you know that sometimes you just got to give it time yeah. and just go ahead and move on and work on something that's a little bit more appropriate for where things are. So we had so, that happen to us, Mayo, in the fitness industry. Uh -huh. we, are, we are 10 years early with functional fitness. I was promoted in 85, and it didn't even become remotely talked about until 95, and the real fit, functional fitness wave hit the fitness industry between 2002 and 2004. And even with huh. that, there was no such thing as a sports medicine clinic in 1985. Uh -huh. Sports medicine clinics became popular in about 1994, 95 as well. And I had been doing, going to what I thought was going to be a sports medicine clinics since 1985 when I started doing my road trips. And it was those people that were going to be future sports medicine clinics that bought our products. Like they mm. were the visionaries, right? And and I was right. giving them their first functional product. So, you know, for two industries, we were about five to 10 years early. And people were laughing at me at so many shows. They thought it was the stupidest product ever. Mm. And I've often said to people, if you ever see me sitting on the side of the road, the reason I'm there is this is where the bus stop will be built when the town arrives. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like that. But, yeah, it's no, a little I, bit extreme, but I, I've been myself. early. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I've definitely had this issue myself. It's a t and it's funny because it's a tough it's a tough problem to have. Sometimes when you have vision and you can see things before other people see them, but you're the only one that sees. It's like seeing a ghost, <laughs> you know. And you're the only person that can see the ghost. And hey, were you, were, yeah, were you the guy doing pod podcasts in the early seventies? <laughs> <laughs> no, quite sure that wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> but no, man, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, I understand what that's like. That It can be difficult. But I, again, I think with experience, you learn how to deal with that. Because to, to me, that's all a part of, I think, the story of innovation. Um, and sort of the, the, the character trait that you have to have when you're an innovative person that's creative because you're going to always get ideas. Mm -hmm. And then again, timing has to mesh up with the idea. So there's these few elements that have to all come into play with ideas. That's kind of like almost a science unto itself, in my opinion. But no, I, I just like to mention that I totally get that. And, and I just want the audience members to know too, that if you're dealing with that, you got great ideas, but bad timing, 
just remember it's not necessarily your timing that's bad it's that the market's timing is not in mm-hmm. alignment with you <laughs> so yeah yeah i do agree i i will throw a comment on that that mm-hmm. you know, i have seen people that made we talk about making your own luck too yeah and i have seen products that have both failed and succeeded at this but if you're going in with a strategic idea, you know, say you've gone for an MBA, just I'm using that as an example, you don't have to by any means, but, mm-hmm. um, and you take a product that you think is going to be a winner and then you get, you know, you decide to take the path of getting some, you know, second tier capital behind it or venture capital and you, your goal is to get out in three years and just to pump the, you know, really pump it up and go for it. Those fail a lot, but I know of three or four that that was the plan going in Right and and it worked. Now that doesn't mean that product's going to have a lot of momentum forever. It'll probably have a spike and then a long ride out, and it might actually just ride for twenty years, right? In a right. in some cycle where it found a, a niche. <clears throat> but the people that I've known that have taken that path have you know bowed out in three or four years at the peak and lived happily ever after, right? And they're no longer associated with their product, but they did succeed. And that's clearly not a path that we even tried to take. We didn't try to explode and then walk away we kind of i decided that this was going to be my my life path i might add another path to it Mm. but it's like what would you be doing if you weren't doing this well i'd about be out there preaching about this probably you know as an evangelist about aging gracefully and and staying active in your life because you know as a libra born in october with a balance disorder i just feel like this is my message this is my calling in life and that's what i'm doing awesome Awesome. So I, I, I do what I believe strongly about. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So what I want to know about now, we're coming towards a, a landing here, but a few more questions that I really wanted. We got to touch on talking about this awesome thing. I'm calling desk size, but it's actually more officially called active office. So what exactly is active office lewis can you explain that to us and why is it so important for entrepreneurs really this picture right here is the easiest way to show it is that the people standing up have good spine alignment and they're working with the forces of gravity right and and it's really hard to stand up hunched over like it's a ton of work to be poor posture so i i always people say well who are your customers i say well it's, it's pretty straightforward if you're affected by time then you're probably a customer. Mm. And if you're influenced by gravity, then you're probably a customer. But boy, <laughs> if you're if you're hit by both time and gravity, then you're for sure a customer of ours. Right. And you know, <laughs> we, we all are. And we know that. It's sort of a bad joke, but it's true. Right. Um, you know, the one thing that's never changed in our world, whether you're Napoleon or Hemingway or whoever you are, is that time and gravity is consistent. And our role in life mm. is to have the best relationship we can our entire life with gravity, because in the end, gravity wins. And I don't <laughs> care who you are, gravity wins in the end. So what those people there in that image you're standing on is an active office board, which is it's a, a little bit like a paddle board is the feeling of it on, on a lake, a big wide paddle board. It just floats a little bit. This is, it's just a piece of wood, really, okay. with a chart on the back. And you can choose any shape you want. So these things move around. It's not a wobble board. Like it's, we, we actually say, on this case, say no to pivot and say yes to float. We make a ton of great wobble boards. That's our main business. But we realize when you use those as a standing desk, it creates too much movement and it can be disruptive to your brain. So when you stand on this thing, it's, it's not too much movement. It's just a small amount of movement. 
And I, I just rock and flow back and forth. I know you can't see it right now by the screen, but you know, I'm typing and working. I can just sort of ebb and flow and shift my hips. And it's a little bit like the movement of a person holding a baby. Like it doesn't matter who you are. Someone's handed a baby. Right. They tend to do this, right? And they keep their head on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the last 10,000 years or so, depends how long you think we've been around, most humans carried siblings on their little kids on their hips mm -hmm. and food and water on their head. And that's what we've done for the better part of 10,000 years. Maybe for the last 500,000, we haven't done that, but our bodies are adapted to upright posture and load bearing on the head. We can do it. Our spine's built for that. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we start typing and we're standing like this and tall guys are slouched over and small people are like this trying to deal with a keyboard that's too high and, you know, they walk around looking up at tall people all day and they're all neck tight <laughs> from looking back. It just kills us. It just right. beats up our body, right? Right. And so as soon as you can stand up, they just even Mayo, if you could stand up right now, but you'll maybe be able to frame mm -hmm. the, the content, the, the net solution, the biggest goal of active office is to have access to standing. And that might be when your phone rings and take 30 seconds to let your body recalibrate. And when you do decompress the core, your organs technically drop down a little bit and all your core muscles will just involuntarily tighten around them and put them back to where they're supposed to be into a neutral position and your eyes and ears will recalibrate with the change of the position mm -hmm. and the eyes, you know, because of the, the blood pressure change, your heart rate will go up a little bit. And more importantly, your proprioceptive awareness in your feet and ankles and all your joints just have to recalibrate to an upright position. Okay. And that's a natural thing that happens. And even this is what you asked about the astronauts before. That's what Joan Vernakis uh, from PhD from NASA that I worked with her quite extensively on a bunch of projects mm. said that she found was most important for the astronauts coming back from outer space to recalibrate their bodies regularly with the forces of gravity on Earth. Right. Because they lost that, that, that awareness in outer space. So when they came to Earth, they could run on treadmills and do all this other stuff. But if they didn't every half an hour while they're awake, stand up and just let their body recalibrate. It's amazingly useful to your health. So at the end of the day in the office, when you're sitting in your chair and you're saying, ah, oh, I got to move. Like, I just feel like I need to do something. Right. Just, if nothing else, stand up for 30 seconds and let your body have its time to do that. Mm. And she said, if you do that, that's invaluable. Hopefully, you'll also go for a walk or move around after. Get a, get a glass of water, go to the bathroom. But every time you kind of feel like you are, you've been doing too much sitting, mm. the trick is to stand up. And I know I said that like 10 times in a row, but that's right, right. guess what the answer is, right? And that's what we call SAM, stability, agility, and mobility. It's just getting the stabilizing with gravity, getting a little bit of movement in your body after that, and staying mobile. Okay. So, you know, it, it's really quite simple. And you know, clearly, if you're standing, you have better access to movement than sitting. Mm -hmm. And so we also carry, you know, a, these chairs that are pivot chairs. That's what I was sitting on the whole time. Okay. When I'm sitting on that, you know, you guys probably noticed I was moving a little bit. So I keep my head on my shoulders, but my trunk's just moving a bit. I can put the chair down low, whoops, <laughs> or uh, up into a sort of a perching position. So if I have a de desk going up and down. And I think the other super important thing just for everybody, this is just common sense and it's true, is that we all have a in this relaxed stance, or I should stand back a bit here. When we're standing with good posture, we have our elbows in one location and our eyeballs in another location. And we're all different heights. And one of my most important rules I say to people is make sure 
that your elbows, when they're bent at 90 degrees and your wrists are straight, mm-hmm. you always want to keep your wrists straight for typing anytime because that's where your carpal tunnel is. And if you type flexed, you will get carpal tunnel syndrome. You need to keep your wrist straight so you don't irritate the carpal tunnel. Okay. So you want to have your elbows straight and think of the distance from your elbows to eyeballs. That should be the distance from your keyboard to your monitor. So a smaller person will have a much smaller travel distance okay. and a smaller person can often get away with a laptop. A tall person needs a big gap. They need mm. a monitor to stand. They can't use a laptop. Right. And the more they use it, the more time they're going to spend looking down and then they're going to stand up and do their texts and then they're going to walk around and look down and talk to everybody and then they're going to hit their head and then they're <laughs> going to duck because they hit their head. And right. you look what's going to happen to their posture, right? They're going to spend their whole day looking down. Right. And the small people are going to spend most of the day looking up and they're going to get very sore here and here if they're small right. and they're going to get right. huge back problems and head forward posture if they're tall. Right. And just have to talk to physical therapists in volume and they'll confirm that's what happens. So, you know, elbows to eyeballs is a good remember, you know, where should your monitor relative to your keyboard be? And that doesn't change sitting or standing. It's always the same. Mm. And move frequently. You know, try to move every half an hour with good posture. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense? Yes, it does, actually. I was going to ask you, so what is it required? to do these things it sounds like you know these are just an adjustment in movements um do you guys have any other types of tools or anything that you can use to maybe help out with this well we have a good catalog full of very uh functional useful products that you'd find in physical therapy clinics okay and they're the same tools you'd find in most training gyms that athletes would use for finger right. strengthening and arm strengthening and okay the same tools that you use for prevention and for gold medal performance mm-hmm are the tools you use for rehab. The point is you use it for prehab or do you use it because you're broken? And we prefer to get not get broken. Right. But I guess you know, I've been broken twice now in the last three years. My knee got resurgery from 1979 when I hurt. They got it fixed. Right. But then right. a piece popped out of it. So I had to have two surgeries. So I call that the bus factor. You know, it didn't work quite, quite right. And then I had another surgery for my jaw and then it has problems now. So, you know, things don't always work the way you want. And this is what I say. Time and life happens. It's not what we plan. It's what happens. And, you know, so now I'm dealing with the exact same thing I tell people to try to avoid. So it even happens to, to me and everyone else, right? Right, So right. Pre- pre- prevention's better, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so as we come in for a landing, I, I'm going to ask this question for some of the business owners um, or it could be even some larger companies that could be listening that may be interested in maybe investing into this for their teams or for their employees. Um, the question that they're probably asking themselves, and I'm going to ask for them is, you know, does this have any type of any bottom line benefits on ROI? What type of return on investment, if any, um, do you know of that a company could look at and say, okay, this may be worth, worth me investing into for my employees. Well, you know, it's, it's unconditionally it does. And I think the most, the biggest research study that I've seen, and it's referred to often by very, that's the very desk people out of uh, Texas. We work with them a lot. We're their Canadian partner, maybe not partner, but we do their corporate coverage in Canada. Uh-huh. And it's, it's uh, Texas A&M did a very major study. I believe it was in 2015, and their bottom line was a 46% improvement in productivity by the employee teams that were involved in the research. And, but much more important with, than that was why that happened. And it was about staff motivation. It was about 
you know, lower healthcare costs. Like if you look at all the factors that were measured, mm. that list is like, it's, you look at that list and go, are you kidding me? Like this, there's no reason in the world you wouldn't do this. Wow. And, and wow. you know, it just, everybody wins. The employer has lower healthcare costs. The staff are happier. They're healthier. They have better interaction. They have higher productivity. Mm. Um, I mean, every box gets checked, right? On awesome. every front and, you know, less days work uh, lost in work. Uh, it's part of a presentation we do called the Active Office Revive Your 9 to 5. And, you know, it's just so obvious. It's kind of like if you didn't brush your teeth and someone showed you the stats. Or if you <laughs> argue, I don't like seatbelts, they wrinkle my jacket. You know, and someone shows you the stats and you go, yeah, right. but people get caught in cars. You know, cars catch on fire and then they can't get out of the car if they wear a seatbelt. Like, right. those, are such, those, those don't work anymore, right? Right, right. The stats about saying, well, no, no, I'm going to make my people sit because I heard about a guy getting hurt once. Those stats are not relevant. There's no wisdom to them at all. Right. You know, right. there's no question. This has been mandated in Australia that standing desks have to be offered as an option. And yeah. it's been an option in Denmark since I used to go there in the 90s. You, everyone got offered a stand-sit desk when they were offered a new job. That's just how it worked. How can the audience get in contact with you and your business, sir? Well, our website is fitter one That's F. I-T-T-E-R, much like what you see up in the back behind me, fitter1.com. We do, of course, have a toll-free number, which surprisingly is 1-800-FITTER-1. And if you'd like to email me, my email is lewisstack, L-O-U-I-S-S-T-A-C-K, at fitter1.com. You see awesome. a trend there. Awesome, awesome. So listen, guys, listen, this stuff is critical. We need this. I need this, honestly. Um, this is something that I'm actually going to start incorporating because I actually have a lot of lower back problems from sitting. I had to change out my chair. That's one of the reasons why I was interested in this. But I've learned a lot just honestly in this show. So, guys, if you want to actually check this out, um, what I'm going to have you guys do now for those that are listening on the podcast, I know there's some things we've talked about that you probably are going to want to see. That's all the more reason to check out the video version of this show and you can come to us on YouTube, but all this will be in your show notes um, as well as the discount code and everything you guys need as it is on every show. It will be there this time as well. So with that said, without further ado, I want to thank Lewis. Oh, one more thing, guys, before I go. Lewis is actually going to be doing a 10-minute presentation for you guys. There will be a breakout presentation where he's just going to be showing you some very valuable uh, sort of like tips, tricks, hacks, and so forth um, for your balance and stability. So check that out as well. He's been gracious enough to do that and offer it to you guys. That's absolutely free. So check that out. That will also be um, a link to that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you so much, Lewis. You are phenom, and we are looking forward. We will have you on the show again, I'm quite sure. And that's it for the Bliss Business Development Show. We'll see you guys on the other side. Bye-bye. Thank you.